Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. I've been uh, thinking this week about uh, unstoppable uh, forces. And uh, so I was thinking about uh, a few years ago, our family went to um, Hawaii. And um, while we were there, went to the big island. And there was a volcano that was still erupting. And I don't follow those things. Maybe it still is to this day. But um, you you could just see the the lava flow off of that volcano. And it was obvious where you could see where the the lava had flown, uh, gone before. And uh, it was obvious nothing in its path was going to stop that lava until it got to the the sea. Just amazing uh, to see the power there. Unstoppable. I was thinking about uh, tornadoes. There's been a a rash of tornadoes in the Midwest uh, this year. Uh, It happens every spring. And... uh, Thinking about those tornadoes as they spin and just destroy everything in their path, and they they seem unstoppable. I was thinking about uh, this uh, high school, Lake uh, County High School in Northern Ohio. Uh, just I think just last weekend wasn't the tornado there, and um, just uh, so destructive and uh, messed up their high school a day or two before graduation. Uh, really sad. Unstoppable. God is an unstoppable force. There is nothing that can stop the power of God. There is nothing that can defeat the power of God. God is an unstoppable force that has no limits. And and here's the good news. God is an unstoppable force that redeems instead of destroys. In, In fact, God says in the New Testament that His church in its purest form is an unstoppable force. Jesus was having a conversation with Peter one day, and Jesus said this to Peter. He said, now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And listen to what he says about the church. And all of the powers of hell will not conquer it. It is an unstoppable force. And so I've been thinking, what would happen if we were to unleash this unstoppable force in our lives, in our community? What would that look like? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to share some things that I think can help unlock the door to allow God's unstoppable power to be at work in our lives and in our community. And I want to start today with what I think is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. It's uh, found in John chapter 8. And so I hope you brought your Bible as always and uh, open it up. We're going to look at John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please, as you leave today out on the tables, there are some Bibles. We'd love for you to pick one of those up. Uh, keep it for your own, and when you come back, bring it with you and uh, uh, be able to study along with us. John chapter 8, I don't think we need a lot of background to set this up. Let me just jump right into what it says. I'm going to actually start reading uh, in verse uh, 2. Here's what it says. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. This is Jesus. He goes to the temple, and as he does so often, he begins to teach, and he must have been an incredible teacher. Because the crowds just seem to gather around him and listen endlessly as he teaches. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of that day, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now, immediately, doesn't it seem like there are some fishy things going on here? If you think about it, these religious leaders catch this woman in the act of adultery. First of all, how did they catch her in the act? Secondly, though, they bring her and make her stand before the temple crowd. Where's the man? It takes two to tango. Why is it that they only bring the the woman and embarrass her as she stands before the crowd? Something fishy. They said to Jesus, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to use it as a basis for accusing him. They're trying to trap Jesus because no matter which answer he gives here, he's going to be wrong. You see, if he says stone her, then he is taking on an authority that the Romans have said the Jews couldn't have anymore. They couldn't sentence someone to be stoned or to be killed. And so the Romans would have been upset. If Jesus sets her free, then he's ignoring the law of Moses which said he needed to stone her. What does Jesus do? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I have no idea what he began to write. People have speculated throughout the years about what it is that Jesus stooped down and began to write. Maybe. Maybe as he wrote in the dirt, he listed out the Ten Commandments. Maybe Jesus began to write some of the sins that those religious leaders had committed themselves. Maybe he wrote the name of a woman that one of them had had an illicit affair with. Maybe he played tic-tac-toe. I don't know. But Jesus writes in the dirt. And that's as long as I can stay down like that. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the oldest and the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. I don't know why they went oldest to youngest. Maybe the oldest were the most experienced and realized the most quickly, I've got sin of my own. Maybe the elders simply led the way and the younger ones followed. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Which one had the greater ability to redeem this woman? Which one was more likely to bring healing to her life? Which one was more likely to put her life back on the right track? Mercy or condemnation? The plan of the religious leaders was to condemn her. Jesus offered mercy. There are two images that I think of as I think of this story. One that isn't so familiar to us. One that is very familiar to us. The first is a stone. Now, when we think of a stone, maybe we think of it as decorative, but and these religious leaders thought of a stone, this was obviously a key part of the story because they were thinking of using this stone to injure, to condemn. And for them, when the stone was held, they would have thought of pain. They would have thought of injury. They would have thought this is going to hurt. And it would have struck fear and anxiety into their hearts. That's one image in this story. There's another image that I think of that is more familiar to us but wouldn't have been so familiar to them. It's a band-aid. When you were a little child and you scraped your knee, you know, you'd go to your mom and mom maybe would clean that up for you and she maybe would spray some things on there that would make it sting a bit. But then she'd take out that band-aid and unwrap it 
and put it on your knee. And even though your knee maybe still hurt some, there was just something about that Band-Aid that started to make it all better, didn't it? And so a lot of times for us, a Band-Aid has sort of become a symbol of healing. We see a Band-Aid and we think of soothing, healing, restoring, redeeming. And Jesus offered the Band-Aid of healing. You see, redemption, not condemnation, has always been God's goal. When you read about why it is that Jesus came to earth in the first place, John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. He didn't come to condemn, He came to redeem. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 talks about how God's kindness moves people towards redemption. It says there, Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? God's kindness, His tolerance, His patience, His mercy leads you towards repentance or Redemption. You see, mercy has a way of unleashing God's unstoppable power in our lives and the lives of people around us. But unfortunately, for most of us, we are far more likely to pick up the stone of condemnation than we are to pick up the band-aid of mercy. It's true if we think about it. It's true for me. Let me give you some things to think about, some images. What happens if you are driving through a certain part of the region that we live in and you were to see a a prostitute standing on the corner? What are the first thoughts that come to your mind for most of us? What kind of person does that? What kind of cheap person involves their life in that way? How could they possibly do that? What kind of horrible person does that? Suppose there's this bossy person maybe that you have to to deal with all the time, maybe at work or on a committee that you serve on, and they are really overly assertive. And what do you think every time they begin to assert themselves? What is that person's deal? What's wrong with them? Why are they so mean? Why do they always have to have their way? What do you think when you see someone on TV who has committed a murder and they're on trial? Maybe like me, at times you think, well, I hope they get what they deserve. Hang them. Kill them. Punish them. What kind of horrible person could commit a crime like that? What happens when you drive down the street and see a homeless person? I, I'll be honest. My first thought a lot of times is, you know what? The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. That guy needs to go get a job. What's wrong with that loser? See, we're really good at picking up the stone of condemnation. Jesus, on the other hand, first thought was often about how to redeem that person. How to bring value back to their life. His first response was to pick up the band-aid of mercy. So inherent in this story are some lessons that I think apply to us and our understanding about mercy and how it is that we are to apply it to other people's lives. Let me share those this morning. First, mercy is not based on innocence. Mercy is not based on innocence. Did you catch again in verse 
3, what it says about this woman. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. She was caught in the act. She wasn't innocent. You ever been caught in the act of something? I was uh, driving home from church camp years ago when I uh, was living in Ohio. It had been a long week of camp, uh, being with kids. And as I was driving home, I was very anxious to see my wife and the boys who were very young at the time. And, uh, you know, my foot got a little heavy and I was feeding. And it wasn't long before I saw those wonderful flashing lights behind me and I pulled over. And you know what? I could have argued and protested, but I was guilty. Fortunately, the very wonderful, excellent Ohio State female trooper that was really good at her job did not write me a ticket. But I was caught in the act. Who hasn't been caught in the act, right? Who among us has, has, never, has never sinned, never missed the mark? It's those who are caught in the act that Jesus says need redeeming. It is people who are guilty. And this woman was very guilty. She was caught in the act of what they considered, and we would too, a horrible sin. The consequence for which in her time normally was death. But Jesus said she's exactly the kind of person that needs mercy. The kind of person who needs healing in their life. Whose life needs to be redeemed. Second lesson. Mercy acknowledges my own failure. The religious leaders stood there ready to cast these stones of condemnation. And Jesus, though, He he stoops down and begins to write in the dirt. And the religious leaders get so frustrated with Jesus. So aggravated. And then Jesus finally stands up and He says this in verse 7. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Any of you in the, that are gathered here that have never done anything wrong, who don't have any sin in your life, go ahead, stone her. Take your best shot. Religious leaders, one by one, I don't know if they dropped their stones or just walked away. Oldest to youngest began to disappear. You know why? Because none of them was perfect. None of them, not a one of them, had lived a life of perfection. None of them could say they'd never done anything wrong. And so they walked away. Stone throwers are sinners too. I uh, not a, I told you last week I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I followed very carefully about a week ago the, the story of the near-perfect game that Detroit's uh, Armando Galarago nearly threw. If you weren't following, he pitched a perfect game all the way with two outs in the ninth inning. There was a grounder. looked like it was an easy play. The throw was made. It looked like the guy was out. But the umpire, Jim Joyce, said safe. There were a lot of emotions at the moment, but his perfect game was gone. Here's the incredible part of the story. Though. Because I've never seen this happen. In all my years of watching sports, Jim Joyce, after he watched the tape of the play, realized he was wrong. And if I understand correctly, the first thing he did was to go and find Armando Galarago and apologize to him. He told him, I was wrong. I missed the call. I blew it. I took away your perfect game. I'm so sorry. 
And then with even more courage, Jim Joy stood in front of the media and in front of the microphones and the cameras and in front of America and said, in some words I won't use here, but um, I blew it. I was wrong. I messed it up. And I feel badly that I have taken away his perfect game. And you know what? Who among us has, has made all the calls right? Who of us has never messed up? Who has never sinned? Not a one of us. You know, there was only one guy in the crowd on this day in the story that was righteous enough to condemn her. Yet he was the only one that didn't. You know what I've realized in my own life? When I take the time to judge my own failures and to look at my own failures before I judge the failures of another, my response is tempered with mercy and compassion. Because I recognize I've messed up plenty. Mercy forces me to acknowledge my own failures before I try to condemn the failure of someone else. Here's another lesson about mercy. Mercy requires patience. Mercy requires patience. I don't know how long this whole scene in the story took to play out. I mean, we read it in a matter of seconds. But I wonder, how long did Jesus stoop and write on the ground? After Jesus spoke, how long did it take before those religious leaders with their jaws tight and still angry, how long before they put the rocks down and walked away? I don't know, but I'm sure of this. Mercy requires patience. When it comes to redeeming the lives of people, when it comes to getting involved in the lives of people who have been struggling with something, it takes time and patience. You know why? Because usually there's a big mess to clean up. On March 24th in 1989, when the Exxon Valdez ran aground in Prince William Sound in Alaska, spilling all of that oil, spread around 1,300 miles up and down the coast. They began the cleanup process not long after. But do you know the cleanup process, even some 20 years later, was in some ways still going on. In fact, I saw on the news this week, you can go to Prince William Sound today and it looks like it has all been restored back to normal. But if you dig on some of the beaches down even just a few inches, you still find oil. It's a long process to clean up that kind of toxic mess. And when toxic sin invades people's lives, it requires a lot of time. It is not fixed overnight. It requires time and patience to clean up the mess. Now there's one more thing about mercy that we need to understand, and don't miss this one. Mercy does demand life change. Mercy demands life change. Jesus' final words in in verse 11. He says to her, then neither do I condemn you. But then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Mercy does not dismiss sin. Mercy does not eliminate the consequences of sin. Jesus didn't just look the other way. Jesus didn't excuse sin. That's not mercy. No, Jesus always commanded people to stop sinning. Always. Every time. That's mercy. 
Mercy challenges people to change their lives, to eliminate the sin, to get rid of it. That's mercy. You know what? These religious leaders who stood there with their stones that day, I don't think they had any interest in trying to help this woman to stop sinning. All they wanted to do was punish her. Jesus, on the other hand, because of His great mercy, wanted to help her eliminate the sin in her life. Wanted to help her begin to live the kind of life that He created her to live in the first place. And that demanded a life change. That was mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to people that we encounter, were we going to carry around the stone of condemnation that ultimately weighs us down and weighs them down too? Or are we going to be someone that carries around the band-aid of mercy? You were given a band-aid as you came in today because I want you to carry it with you for a while. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. Put it in your pocket. And every time you feel it or see it, ask yourself, what's true of me? Am I carrying around a stone of condemnation towards people? Or do I have the band-aid of mercy that redeems and restores? You keep carrying it until you get to the point that you can consistently say, I have become a person of mercy that's concerned about healing and redemption. Renee was 19 years old. She had some really good friends. One of them was named Jamie Torkowski. I'm not sure I say his last name right. Jamie and his buddies had gotten involved in Renee's life. Renee was a cutter. She would cut herself. She was addicted to drugs. They had worked to try to get her into rehab, and finally there was an opening in rehab. And uh, But the night before they were to take her to rehab, she wrote an awful word across her arm, cut herself. When they took her to rehab the next day, they said, we can't admit her today. We don't have medical care for her with an injury like that. You can take her home, and when she heals, you can come back in five days, and we'll still have a spot for her. But these guys thought, well, what do we do? How do we keep this girl that's addicted to drugs and a cutter? What do we do to keep her sober for five more days until we can get her into rehab? And so they, they set up a schedule where they began to uh, care for her. They found things to do that she enjoyed that entertained her. They studied the Bible with her. They took her to church. They talked about Jesus. She stayed sober. And the night before that she was in her rehab, she pulled out a blade and she gave it to Jamie and said, this is the blade I used to cut myself last time. I think you better hold on to this. They got her into rehab the next day and it's been a long process. A lot of work in her life. But today, Renee is sober. Renee is following God. Maybe you've heard Renee's story. It's part of the group to write love on her arms. Guys, as a way to help pay for her rehab, started making t-shirts and got bands to wear them and all kinds of stuff now because they were in the business of redeeming. What if Jamie and his buddies had been carrying the stone of condemnation? Where would Renee's life have ended up? What if they were more concerned about punishing her than they were redeeming her? But because Jamie and his buddies carried the band-aid of mercy. Renee's life has been forever changed. It's been redeemed. Because they invited her to stop sinning. 
And they did it with love and mercy. You know, back in our story from the Bible, these religious leaders, they did one thing on that day. You see, when you find somebody trapped in sin, the best thing you can do is to take them to Jesus. God, thank You for the redeeming power of mercy. The mercy that we've experienced in our lives. God, would You help us to carry the band-aid of mercy to people around us so that we can unleash the unstoppable power of Your work. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.